episode of Grab Them by the Pod. As always, your hosts, Jesse and Kevin. I am Kevin, and with me as always... Is your monkey boy, Jesse? Wait, no, no, that's, that's Wayne's World. That's Garth. My bad. A little Wayne's World reference. If you don't know, Jesse and I are have an affinity for the Wayne's World movies, so we might slip some references in once in a while. It's been on, by the way, a lot lately. It has. As if I didn't, as if, as if I didn't already <laughs> own both Wayne's World 1 and 2 in my, my movie collection, but whenever it comes on TV, I feel like I have to watch it. So you're right. I ha- I've seen it a couple times recently, too. Well, you know, before we get going here, I want to throw a curveball at you. Can I do that? Sure. Something came up uh, I noticed before, uh, you know, a couple minutes ago, and I figured, you know, we we are pretty rough usually on President Trump, and I imagine most of the people that listen to us are probably people uh, who are more like you, you know, people who don't like Trump, who are Democrats. But, you know, I I have a little Democrat, Democratic gossip, big D Democratic. Um, Have you heard about uh, Bo Biden's widow? I have not. Bo Biden's widow is now having a relationship with Bo Biden's brother, who is married but estranged from his wife. Well, there's nothing like keeping it in the family, I guess you could say. It's going to make the holidays a little strange in the Biden household, I think. But, uh, hey. They're billing it, like, like page six is billing it as an affair, but I guess, you know, the wife and, and the other brother are, you know, are separated or whatever but it's just so weird that you know hey you were married to my uh, brother he's dead and now i'm sleeping with you what what i'm pretty sure this is the makings of a lifetime movie but you know hey you ha- you have to do what you have to do so to each his own good for them and and i really think that joe biden would be a great reality star if they had like you know the bidens the, that's my biden and they have the, bro- the the kids running around and then you just have you know gr- you know good old uncle joe you know, doing whatever, putting his words of wisdom. I think it'd be a lot of fun to watch. I'd watch it. So, you know, not that we always want to do gossip on this show, but I figured, you know what, it just kind of came out in the last couple of hours. Throw a bone to the other side, make them feel good. Yeah, why not? So, <laughs> so but alas, <laughs> we can't be nice for too long. Let's get right into this now, Jess. Okay, okay. So, you know, we're going to get to the joint session. That's the, the big thing. Before we get there... Um, I think it was earlier this week, earlier this week or late last week. Um, Trump was on Fox and Friends. That's that's the only one that he really likes watching. He, you know, they're they're good people because they say good things about him. And John Oliver actually uh, a week or two ago played a number of clips where they were saying, "Well, we know the president's watching us right now, so it's a well-known fact in D.C. that he that he likes Fox and Friends." Anyways, while he was on there, they discussed the uh, the problems that some of the Republican members of Congress are having in their town halls, where people are upset, people are mad. Um, I know Trump's called them paid protesters. Now he's claiming that Obama, Obama and his quote-unquote people, whatever that means, are definitely behind the protests and the leaks, which, I mean, you know, it's all ridiculous, but the protests are one thing. But what do you think? He's like calling his CIA buddies in the White House saying leak this stuff for me? Well, I think what he might be referring to is the Organizing for Action uh, committee that came out of the Obama presidential elections. Uh, So after President Obama was elected, his campaign uh, movement was kind of morphed into this organizing for action. And I would imagine that's what he's referring to, that these people who are still very much fans of President Obama and, and the organizing and the movement that was behind that are what is behind this. However, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that that's the case. I know we've talked about that before uh, on the show, that it could just be that people are frustrated. People are, are not happy with their Congress, and they are holding them accountable. But, hey, who am I to judge? 
you know what they say, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes what you see is what you're getting. Um, but, you know, but honestly, though, when it comes to Obama and how he wants to get involved, I did uh, hear a report recently from uh, Eric Holder told somebody. You know, I'm not a huge Eric Holder fan, but, you know, that's, that's another story. And um, I hear he's a nice guy. I think his wife was a doctor or something and delivered my old boss's old kids. Anyways, um, Eric uh, Holder said that Obama's coming and he's like ready to rock and roll or, or something to those effects. So I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily think we'll see Obama come out in direct opposition to Trump, but I think he's definitely going to get out there. Um, if he's been helping people mobilize, he'll be putting his face to that now a little more, which, you know, I, I think is great getting more people involved. Yeah, he'll be getting his uh, name out there a little bit, trying to help. And you've even seen former President George W. Bush make a few comments in the yeah. last few days. You know, he, he wasn't. Yeah, GW, he wasn't exactly – he was trying to toe the line, which I think he actually did a very good job in the Obama presidency. I always say I think, you know, regardless of what you think of him as a president, I think he was a model former president. He didn't he didn't um, say anything bad about Obama always president, even when he got hit a couple times. But, yeah, he, he had a couple of slight digs on his day show about, you know, what do you think? Like, you know, he's, the, the press is an important part of democracy, uh, that, you know, while immigration policy is necessary, he's for a free immigration, you know, a free and open and legal immigration policy. So, you know, he's he's kind of criticizing Trump without necessarily directly criticizing him. But that's that's, that's the last uh, president of your party, you know, not not going along with you like, you know, a lot of other people might be. Sure. And the idea that power is addictive, you know, and I think with Donald Trump, that's something really to look at. He's been in positions of power within his companies and there's no one to stop him. But here there's a system in place. That's how democracy is meant to work. That's how our checks and balances are meant to work. And and hopefully if <laughs> we take the tone of last night's uh, speech to the joint con uh, session of Congress, hopefully we can see that as a positive. Maybe he's learning that he does not have absolute power, that he has to tone himself down a bit. Well, I, I have something to say about that, but we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Um, by the way, in that same interview, Trump said, you know, he gave himself an A for achievement, but a C for messaging. And that's why people aren't, aren't with me and I don't have the greatest approval because, you know, I'm just not a good messenger. No, no. Um, yeah, my A for achievement, that's great. Um, the other story this week, which, you know, it's it, the stories vary, but it's a fun story. And I figured we'd talk about it is um, the Kellyanne Conway uh, kneeling on the Oval Office couch. Did you, did you see the pictures of this? I did. And, uh, you know, I hate to say that it's much ado about nothing and completely dismiss it. At the end of the day, was I offended? No, I'm not offended, but I can see where the offense might be taken. You know, have some respect for the office. This is not your living room. Well, you know, if people are saying it's disrespectful and then the other side was saying, you know, well, Obama was seen with his feet on the, the resolute desk a lot and, you know, blah, 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 blah. To me... It's not the problem. You know, it's not disrespectful. Like whatever. It's um, who cares? We put a lot of, a lot of worth in things that are I think are stupid. But to me, it's just reeks of unprofessionalism. Um, I mean, the president can do whatever the hell he wants in the Oval Office. Just ask Bill. But <laughs> but you know, but if, you know, the president wants to put his foot on the desk. Whatever. He's a president. But I think anybody else in there, with maybe the exception of the vice president, should you know, it's like being with your boss. And if I was with the head of my company now who, you know, I won't get into it, but recently actually met with President Trump earlier this week. But um, if I was in a meeting with him, I would certainly wouldn't be kneeling, you know, on my knees like that. I would be sitting professional. But and maybe it's just how Trump runs his, uh, his Oval Office in his White House because Steve Bannon is in there with, like, no tie and cargo pants. So I don't know. 
Right. You know, to, in, in my classroom, I feel bad. Uh, I feel like I'm caught with my pants down if I'm ever sitting and an administrator walks in. So I would never do what Kellyanne Conway did. But, you know, that's part of who she is, I guess. She she comes off as a little bit aloof and, and maybe she just doesn't even think that this is even important. And if Donald Trump is willing to allow that, is that if that's the kind of ship he wants to run, then that's his administration. But you might want to think about the optics. You might want to think about how the outside world's going to perceive that. When it comes to Kellyanne Conway, and really so many people, uh, Republicans in Congress or governors or in the White House, I would really just like to peek in their brain and see you know, how many people drink the drink the Kool-Aid and how many people are like, this guy is nuts, but you know he's a president and we're going to work for him. I, I don't know, because you, know, you just never know. Like during the joint session speech, someone I, I was watching it, but I was mostly listening to it. I was kind of multitasking, and someone told me they thought it was funny because they, they saw Trump say something and and uh, Paul Ryan laugh or something. And my thing with Paul Ryan again, you may not like Paul Ryan for a number of reasons, but I don't think he he swallows or drinks all of the Trump Kool Aid. I think I don't know. Maybe he's just waiting for this administration to go down so he can be president. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would uh, sense that that's more the case. You know, he's biding his time, uh, you know, trying not to, to make anything too controversial, any any comments that are too controversial. Uh, and every once in a while, a, a laugh slips out of him. You know, I, I've talked before about um, a podcast that I listened to um, with John Favreau and John uh, Lovett and a few other people from the Obama administration called uh, Pod Save America. And one of the things that you know, I like them, but I think they're um, a, a little too smug, definitely before the election. And that came bit them in the butt. But one of the things they do that I don't necessarily like is that they call they go like, oh, uh, uh, Paul Ryan is a coward for not standing up to Trump. They do all this stuff for not standing up to Trump. And they never really talk, though, about the political realities of why you may just suck it up and take it in the keister. You know, if, if you're in a in a district that voted for, for Trump heavily, you know, yes, you, everybody wants to think that you would stand up, you know, for, and do what's right. But also, if you've been working your entire life to be a, in a member of Congress and you finally get there, you may, you know, do what you need to do to stay in Congress. So I think it's, you know, it, it's not black and white like a lot of things that we, we talk about on the show. Right. And I think what we want, what we hold up this ideal, those of us out here in America, the John Q. Public, we want to think that our representatives are going to Washington and they are, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, that they're going there to fight the good fight, that they're upstanding people, that they are only there to represent us and, and they could care if they get reelected. But the reality is that while they're there to represent us, they also want to have uh, some sort of longevity. They want to be able to build uh, a career there, so to speak, so that they can maybe get something done. In the long run, we might benefit. But that we don't benefit if they're only there for one term. So I don't know. I hear what you're saying. But when, when Jerry Maguire was leaving and goes, who's coming with me? You know, only Renee Zellweger left. No one else left because he may have been right in what he was saying. But, you know, they like their job. So anyways, right. um, moving on to the speech. And actually, before we get into – I wanted to fact check some of the things that Trump said in the speech. And before we do that, though, I want to get your opinion on this because I would say the standout moment last night – I'm assuming you watched it, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. The standout moment, I think, is when they had uh, Ryan Owens' widow. Um, she, he was the guy that, w that was killed in Yemen in the first week or two of the Trump presidency, and, and Trump was talking about him, and he's a hero. And she was you know, very emotional, as she would be with her husband who died less than a month ago. And they stayed on her a lot. And to me, now, this isn't a Republican thing or a Trump thing. I think they, both sides do this. What do you feel about at these State of the Union or joint session uh, speeches where they use people as props? Well – 
I'm glad you asked me this because I do have feelings about this sort of situation. I have a big issue with the idea of heroism and patriotism. And while I do believe that Ryan Owen is in every sense of the word a patriot and a hero, giving his life for his country in defense of the ideals of our country and our democracy, at the same time, I feel as though sometimes that word patriotism is bastardized. That the only people who are patriotic are those that are serving in the military, that are going to war, that are waging war against other places in the world. And I look at it more as why don't we do things to make it less violent? Why don't we do something to put less people, fewer people in harm's way so that we don't have to use them as a prop in the middle of a State of the Union address? And so to speak more directly to your point, I get it. Right. It's nice sometimes to put a face to the name, but I can also see through you. Let, you know, we're holding up these people to try to make some sort of political point. And I'd rather see you actually get down to the brass tacks and get something done that's going to positively impact the greatest amount of people. You know, I'm a I'm a comic book nerd. We talk about this all the time. And, um, you know, there are lots of famous storylines with Captain America where, you know, he gives up being Captain America because, you know, he doesn't it's not. The government and every it's the ideals of America that are important to him, and he stands up for what's right, um, regardless of who's in power. And you know, and that might be just a comic book, but I think that's actually true. That um, there are a lot of ideals that you think of when you think of America, and I think it's important that we recognize all of those, not just the ones that get pushed. Um, I think it's very easy to kind of become a little jingoistic in how we look at things, and you know, America's the best, rah 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 rah. And yeah, I think I think this is a great country, and there's if. If I could pick any time and any place in the in ever to live, it would be right here and right now. Um, but I, I think we have to ask questions about things. That's exactly what um, his father wants. Was, and, then, and we're wondering if his wife being there is going to affect how this was going to going to proceed. Because Ryan Owen's father said, you know what? He doesn't want to meet the president. Um, he doesn't want to just say he's a hero and move on. He wants us to be out there for people to talk about and to be investigated, see what was going on. And you know, Trump would say it's being unpatriotic not to just say he's a hero and move on. And his and his father has the right way that being patriotic is standing up and saying, you know, we want the truth and uh, we want to know what happened. If it wasn't right, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. And that's that's my point here. You know, blind patriotism, like blind faith in your leadership will get you killed sometimes. And, you know, we should be able to question that is patriotic to question your leadership. If you feel that what they are doing, their policies are going to be detrimental. And certainly, you know, this, the raid that took place in which uh, Ryan Owens was killed, as well as innocent civilians, children uh, in Yemen were killed as a part of this, we should be questioning, we should be looking in, just as much so as they were looking into Benghazi mm -hmm. a few years ago. Okay, so to me, you know, that's the issue here. And to speak to that idea of patriotism, I hate to throw a shameless plug here, but uh, you should check <laughs> out the blog. Uh, educated Opinions, uh, www.educatedopinionsblog.com, uh, where we write about uh, some things is from the educator standpoint. Some teacher friends and myself uh, write our opinions. I just posted one the other day about this very same topic. So, but yeah, you know, we'll, I hate we'll tweet out the link. Don't worry. Yeah, it we'll sounds sure good. Thank it. you. <laughs> but yeah, blind patriotism—that's uh, not any good either. Try asking questions of your government if you're in North Korea and see if you don't get thrown to dogs and eaten alive. And that's not even a joke. That's what, they, you know, that's what would happen. 
Um, there, are, there are places in, in this world where you would not dare stand up to your government, and that's what makes uh, America you know, so great for all of our faults. Uh, I think we're pretty great. So, uh, but moving on from, from that to the speech itself, um, yeah, you know, it was a very un-Trump-like speech, at least at the beginning. He started off talking about uh, racism, anti-Semitism. He was a little more low-key, and I guess for Trump, he was relatively low-key for the whole speech. Um, but I, I, I did see uh, an interview today where Bill Maher kind of called this a uh, teleprompter Trump, and don't be, and don't be fooled that you know, next time he doesn't have a teleprompter, and he's just kind of going off the cuff, he's going to go back to saying some you know, crazy things again. Right. We can't be surprised by what Donald Trump does. And what was surprising about last night is the fact that he did stick to script. And like you said, when he does that, then we're going to be you know, fairly OK or positive about the results like we were. Uh, but when he is off script, he's a loose cannon. And that's when we get the kind of things that that we've seen, the irrational quotes, uh, the Twitter posts. Uh, that's what worries me is that we can't be lulled into this false sense of security that, oh, things have turned around, he gets it now, he's going to be better. I don't believe that, not yet. Though his Twitter account has been relatively quiet. He just tweeted out, thank you, after the speech. I thought for sure he was going to be going on. So who the hell knows? Maybe, maybe they finally took away his BlackBerry, I don't know, or his iPhone, I don't know. If we're lucky, they did. But as I went and looked at a couple sites and, and uh, tried to research uh, what was said, to me... The entire speech could be summed up using the words of former President George W. Bush, fuzzy math uh, involved in a lot of his, his claims. So you know, we just want to go through a couple of different areas here, um, kind of go off of what he said and just you know, talk about the, the, the reality of the situation. So you know, he, he loved pointing that you know, he inherited the horrible Obamacare, and Obamacare is collapsing. And all the experts really say that I saw, at least, you know, collapsing is too strong of a word. You know, sure, health insurers have been pulling out of the exchanges. Premiums are rising. So nothing is perfect. But they said the real collapse and the real bad scenario would be if they repeal this without having a real replacement, you know, ready to put it in. And uh, he, he, he talks a big game. He, he did the same thing yesterday, being very vague. You know, we have, we have wonderful things to put in there, but... In, until you can show us what you got, um, to me, it's troubling. Yeah. You know, Obamacare, I think it's important to point out that this was a, a program that has been flawed from the beginning, not because of the president necessarily whose name is associated with it, but because of the Congress that was in power and had the power to pass the bills. It was missing pieces that might have made it better. And even President Obama himself was quick to point out, as Trump was taking office, that if you can come up with something that is better, I am all for it. If you can make some of the changes that I was not able to get done, if you can get them done, then please do. Throw your name on there. I don't care. But as long as the desired effect is being reached, that's what I want to see. And so yeah. I think we need to look at it from that sense. Uh, it's it's going to be an interesting fight, and I I still don't I don't think they're going to repeal and replace. I think they're going to end up performing. It's a lot easier. It's a smarter option, and it'll piss off constituents a hell of a lot less. I think. Yeah, the 20 million folks who are benefiting from it uh, would be up in arms. And you yeah. know, to repeal without replacing, you know, that's comparable to the bank runs of 1929, the stock market crash. When you pull everything out of it, it's going to it is going to make it collapse. 
Well, I, there were rumors for a long time that I don't think it's going to come to this that they were going to get rid of it and then say we have it coming, but it won't be available to after the midterm elections. So then, you know, they going to keep keep the Republicans in office. I don't, it'll be a mess. So, you know, this is, this is going to be an ongoing story for a long time. So this will not be the last time we'll talk about, um, you know, again, we should probably shouldn't say Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care Act. I, I even caught myself at work today. I was writing up um, – a letter to send to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service, and be like, whoa, 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 not Obamacare, no. Yeah, we should probably use the technical term. Let's not confuse people any more than they already are. It's a good name, though. I mean, Trump Care doesn't run off, doesn't just run off your tongue like that. But Obamacare, it, it sounds like it was meant to be. Sure does. Um, uh, moving on to Trump's claim that he look around, we have drained the swamp. Um, you know, look at his cabinet. That's not. That's not really draining. Yeah, but, I think there's a, something like $13 billion total uh, as far as uh, people's net worth within his cabinet, $13 billion. So if that's draining the swamp, I want to swim in that swamp. Yeah, invite me to that pool party sometime. Uh, but I would like your opinion because I'm very biased actually here, and I want to talk about this because I feel like this never gets gets spoken about. Um, uh, you know, there's a lifetime ban on the executive branch lobbying for foreign governments, and there's a five-year ban on White House and congressional officials from lobbying. Um, I'm, as I've, I think I've mentioned on here, I'm a former lobbyist, and I feel like most people think that lobbyists are sitting around twirling their mustaches, you know, cackling as they've they've tied the American people to a train track somewhere. But um, to me, I, and both sides are actually for this, so I'm I'm a man on my own, but. Um, yeah, I know they're trying to stop a quid pro quo that, you know, oh, you work in the White House and you have connections. But to me, sometimes you don't get paid. I mean, I guess if you're in the White House, maybe you get paid some money. But um, when you work in the public sector, you're not raking in the dough, but you put in your time. And I think after you put in your time, the money you get in the private sector is kind of your reward for being a public servant. So to a certain degree, it kind of bothers me, especially when I was a lobbyist. I was making, you know, by D.C. standards, very little money. And this would have affected me. Well, I think we need to uh, disconnect lobbyists from what most lobbyists actually do, as you pointed out. I don't think Jack Abramoff did you any favors by doing his dirty deeds and then wearing that trench coat and that hat. You know, that kind of gives that sinister look. I, I had a but, former boss, by the way, who used to work with him and knew a lot of the people involved and said that the movies on him made him seem nice compared to what he was like in real life. I believe so, it. Yeah. But most lobbyists, as when you were lobbying, are lobbying for good causes. Right? We can't discount and discredit those that are actually out there lobbying for things like medical research or for funding for social programs. There's good lobbying being done in addition to some of these more sinister ones and pharmaceutical companies and you know other uh, billion dollar enterprises. So we shouldn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater here. I, I worked for um, several years at the lobbying firm and you know, I'm sure you can Google this and find out where I worked, but that's fine, uh, with former uh, congressman from Pennsylvania, Phil English. Very nice guy, really nice guy. And there's a two-year ban. I don't know what the rules are now, but at the time there was a two-year ban for former members from lobbying. So he would kind of – you find rules, ways to get around it that you kind of like, you know, you make connections and then high lobby. But, you know, he he had nothing sinister going on in what he was doing. So, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. I understand why they want to do what, what they're doing, but I think maybe you know, maybe if it's like you were making under $150,000 because the, the, the real guys who you don't want to mess with, those are the ones making like – 250,000 and higher. You know, it's I know that sounds like a crazy, you know, oh, what, you're only making $150,000. I was making nowhere near that by the way. But um but as when it comes to lobbyists in DC, I think there's a there's a big difference, so I don't know. 
Yeah, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about <laughs> immigrants. That's another big uh, issue for President Trump, and and certainly he talked about that in his speech last night. Uh, I particularly hung on to the quote about the bad ones. Yeah, the, the bad dudes. He, he didn't say dudes. That was very good. The bad ones are getting rid of the bad ones. He traded um, hombres for ones. Where where? Yeah. Uh, you know what, what what's what's the next you know, the, the the bad chicos I don't know the bad uh, he like he's sticking with the Spanish theme right um you know according to him the immigrants coming in here and taking all of us good real American jobs and and cutting our wages so they did a they looked into this and last fall had a report from the National Academies of Sciences and found that immigrants have pretty much little to no negative effects on wages and jobs for what you would call I guess native born Americans. And, uh, you know, it's they're, again, they're coming here because uh, they, they need a new start, but they're not like coming here like, oh, I want to be a doctor now. They oftentimes work the jobs that we don't want to work um, for cheaper than they should. And really, the study shows that they have a larger effect on immigrants who are already here. And I guess if, if you want to look at native born um, Americans, people who are high school dropouts, those are what they found. So, you know, again, those people need jobs too. So I'm not trying to belittle that, but it's it's not like the vast majority of Americans are getting screwed over by these people. No, and that very same report that Donald Trump was citing actually goes on to say that immigration has an overall positive impact on the long run economic growth of this country. So you know, he's picking and choosing the statistics he wants to use, and and he's being kind of vague with the ones he uses anyway. And overall, as you said, immigrants are working in many jobs that Americans have long since passed over because they feel that they are, are too low wage or they are beneath them. And so we beggars can't be choosers, right? We want people to do those jobs too. And now all of a sudden we want to turn around and try to rid them of those positions. Well, raise your hand if you want to volunteer to go back to working some of those, what we would consider to be menial jobs. You want to be picking peaches in the field all day? I don't think so. Um, and a lot of these people, uh, I, and this is a discussion, or more like a debate I would feel I want to have on a future podcast about a lot of these jobs that are being um, automized, automatized, whatever the whatever the word is. Um, and, automated, and I think. Automated, there you go. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a learned person. I got a master's and everything. But, um, you know, that, that's a discussion for another time, but I really want to have it. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it really affects uh, some of these folks. Um the, the terrorism thing was pretty crazy when I when I fact checked that um, you know, he said that between uh, you know that, that most the majority of the people who have been convicted uh, from terrorism since nine, since uh, 9/11 have been uh, foreign-born people. So if you look at the numbers, um, there was a report that was given from the Justice Department to the Senate, which it was given to Jeff Sessions, who is currently you know in in the government and uh, an interesting guy. Uh, so they said in in that time from 9/11 to 2014, 580 people were convicted of, or were arrested for terrorism. Of those 580, 380 of them were born outside the United States. So okay, that's a majority. Then when you look at the numbers a little more, um, only 40 of those were actually planned on U.S. soil, and 241 of those weren't even for terrorist effects. It's uh, offenses. It's like if I called in a tip saying, "Hey, uh, Kevin over here is a terrorist. They went to arrest you." But then they found you, you know, stealing cable, and they arrested you. So you're arrested, but but it didn't end up being for terrorism. So those numbers just they don't pan out. And um, of the 380 that were born outside the United States, only 24 of those came in as refugees. So it's not like refugees are pouring in here, and now that they're here, look, you're looking to blow things up. Oh right, and by definition, a refugee is someone who is seeking refuge. They are are fleeing terrorism. They are trying to get away 
from that. So the vast majority, of course, we can't deal in absolutes here, but the vast majority of people coming here as refugees are not coming here looking to do harm. The idea of using the term radical Islamic terrorism, right? Something that President Obama and also George W. Bush refused to use that term in the post 9-11 era uh, for fear that it is actually, you know, it's, it's dangerous. It, it drums up some things in uh, other parts of the world that might be dangerous to the United States. And it's been against the wishes of some of the military and national security advisors, right? The new national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, was openly against Donald Trump using the term radical Islamic terrorism. But of course, he's only in his first you know, week or two on the job. But, you know, I wouldn't question somebody like McMaster, who has a Ph.D. in military history, who, you know, has background in military matters and dealing with uh, these enemies of the United States around the world and using a term like that, which might exacerbate the situation. Like these people... They serve at the pleasure of the president, but they're there for a reason, not just take up space. And when you are in their positions as you know, NSA director or head of the DOD or whatever, they have an expertise to a certain degree that they're sharing with you, and maybe it's worth listening to them every once in a while. And McMaster believes in questioning the authority. I mean, as part of his PhD dissertation, uh, it later became the book Dereliction of Duty, which is about uh, military, high-ranking military leaders and their lack of questioning of President Lyndon Johnson and Defense Secretary Robert McNamara during Vietnam, right? So this is somebody who believes in questioning the leaders of our government uh, on matters of military if it's believed that they are handling them uh, inappropriately. Um, I don't mean to interrupt this conversation right now, but we may have some some late-breaking news. So uh, it looks like uh, Jeff Sessions may have lied during his confirmation hearing oh about my. having contact with Russia oh from, my. From, from Reuters. U.S. Attorney General Sessions did not disclose Russia contact. contact. Let's see what this says. Um, then U.S. Senator Jeff Sessions spoke twice last year with Russia's ambassador encounters he did not disclose when asked during his confirmation hearing to become attorney general about possible contacts between the Trump's campaign and Russian officials. One of the meetings was a private conversation between Sessions and Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak <laughs> that took place in September in the senator's office at the height of what the U.S. intelligence officials say was the Russian cyber campaign uh, to mess up the, the United States pres presidential race. And this stuff's not going away. Russia's not going away. Like We, well, we need to, to continue to look into this. Well, just you lie during that confirmation hearing. That could get you in big trouble. A lot of these people pulled out because they were afraid they were going to lie. So oh, that's – I'm really interested to see where this is going to go. It's worth keeping our eyes on. I mean I'm sure these guys will come out and be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's fine. He made a mistake. Nothing, nothing, nothing worth looking at here where if that was Hillary, good God. Well, if Elizabeth Warren was forced to sit down and shut up because she was making disparaging comments yeah. about a, a former colleague, I can't imagine they'd be too willing to you know, go after him for this. You know, and if this doesn't say you need an independent counsel in there, then nothing will. No, it doesn't. I mean, the head of your department. So, so sorry, I did not mean to cut you off and to kind of oh. throw that in there. But I saw, I saw that text come in from a colleague of mine. I'm like, oh, that's going to be good. By all um, means, good stuff. All right. Uh, moving on to the Middle East spending. Um, again, this is where some of that fuzzy math comes in. Um, and again, it's like he's not lying, 
but he's not presenting it necessarily truthfully. Uh, he says you know, we spent $6 trillion on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what he's doing, he's setting a high-end estimate of what is a credible analysis of the spending with these wars. Um, but he's confusing money that's going to be spent with money that's already been spent. Um, through this year, it's a lot of money, so I'm not pretending it's not. Um, the United States has spent $3.8 trillion and another maybe another trillion uh, just another trillion, no big deal, on care for veterans. But um, the, the full cost of the war, which you know, I guess with um, inflation and everything, will be 7.9 trillion. Won't be till 2053. So it's still a crap load of money, to put it mildly. But you know, it's 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 not the full picture. You see a lot of that in the speech. Right, and if he's concerned about spending, if he's concerned about a $6 trillion Middle East spending budget, then why isn't he more concerned about diplomacy? Why is he wanting to increase military spending with a $54 billion uh, military spending budget? You know, he, he whines about Obama, you know, oh, we have, uh, we're, we're in debt now. Uh, he, he's doing nothing to balance the budget in what everything that's leaking out about what his budget's going to be. He's just shifting money around, taking it from things like the EPA, from education, even though he was talking about that last night, um, from the State Department, and putting it all towards uh, towards uh, military. I mean, if you look at the budget, the, it's the, the military, DOD, that, uh, Social Security, Medicare, those kind of things, that's where the vast majority of money is. Um, I, I was, it's funny, I was listening to a podcast uh, from 538 recently at the, it's Nate Silver's site, and they were saying that you know, people get pissed off at these foreign countries and want to cut their aid, but I think like, foreign aid is less than 1% of what our budget is normally. So if you're taking, if there's a small piece of the pie that goes to things that aren't those three things, and you're taking money out of there, I mean, you're going to feel it in the in the classroom. You're going to feel it in the State Department. It's, it's, I mean, the EPA is EPA is screwed already because that's the, that's the thankless job. It's the worst job in the world because you're probably never going to win. It's just unfortunate. And take money away from them. I mean, ugh, it's a mess. Right. And you know, here again, diplomacy. We might be able to limit some of this spending, but who am I? Who are you? You're just a teacher. What do you? What do you? Hey. What do you know? <laughs> Teachers. Yeah, we we get dumped on our fair share. <laughs> Oh, so um, you know, one of the things that Trump really likes to push is, you know, he, it was basically Armageddon when he became president, and he's already made American steps. carnage. Yeah, American carnage. Where the, again, go back to North Korea, or just go back to like Libya or Syria, places where these people are literally dying every day, and you tell them about how we're having American carnage. Um, I, I think they would probably drop dead of just not being able to believe you just said that. Um, so he says this was, he took over the worst financial recovery in history, um, although the experts are saying he should have been saying economic recovery, not financial. But, you know, we wouldn't expect Trump to get things right. <laughs> um, you know, Trump inherited what they call a strong, you know, imperfect, but a, but a strong economy from Obama. And just PolitiFact politi states that uh, when Obama handed Trump the reins to the economy, there was a 4.7 percent unemployment rate, 75 consecutive months of job growth. Um, rising stock prices, uh, home values and corporate profits and consumer confidence was all high. There was low inflation. You know, yeah, there's some income inequality, but generally speaking, and especially where we were coming from, from the Great Recession, things were looking pretty good. Exactly. I mean, where are the bread lines? Where are the Hoovervilles? Okay, a 4.7% unemployment rate. You know, people seem to be, not to say that there aren't issues with our economy. It's not perfect. It could get better. 
Ask but, your parents or your grandparents about getting gas a couple of decades ago and see how that was. Yeah. People seem to be, on the whole, living okay. Right? You've mentioned these other countries where, you know, the, the carnage is real, where there are real crises, uh, economic crises, and we don't seem to be suffering that bad. Okay? You know, I, I see a lot of areas for growth, but at the same time, we've gotten a lot better. So... You know, he can't keep painting this picture to make it sound like we've turned into a third world country. We're not. It's everything is relative. Being poor sucks. And the people in America, you know, they, something has to be done to help them out. But being poor in America is still a hell of a lot better than being in some of these other countries, you know, a lot of other countries. So, um, you know, the, I understand certain points he wants to make, but it's very important the language he uses because uh, your entire point could be credible, but if you say stupid things, it's going to get lost immediately, and people are going to just kind of check out. Yeah, I might want to invest a few dollars in like a debate or a rhetoric coach, something. Yeah, not that it would help. You know, Trump. Trump's going to do what Trump's going to do. Trump's going to be Trump. Um, and again, this fuzzy math, and this is by far, and he's used these numbers in the past. This is by far the biggest. It's a to me, it's a flat out lie. It's it's not a lie. But he's saying it knowing it's a lie. When he said, uh, you know, we're losing labor, 94 million Americans are out of the labor force. Um, the number is probably closer to 90 million. But it's misleading because that in that includes people who are 16 and older. So if you're in high school, you're in college, you're a stay-at-home parent, you're disabled, you're retired. Um, and by the way, those, those people make up three-quarters of that number. So the number is uh, not 94 million. It's more like... 23 million, which you know, it seems like a lot of people, but it's the difference between having like a 29% unemployment rate and like a seven, and it's still lower than that too. Yeah, right. 29%. Uh, that's higher than the Great Depression was. So again, I come back to that. We we're on the whole, we've improved and, and we're starting to live okay again. So uh, and he knows better. That's that's what he's you know. There's some things you know he, he just convince himself, but that's you ask anybody, you any economist in the world. They'll they'll tell you what what's going on there, and he just doesn't care because you know what it sounds better to say ninety four million people are out of work, right? And that's it's something to be fair that's common amongst all presidents during State of the Union speeches. Politicians in general tend to bend some of the facts to meet their needs, right? So ninety four million makes the case a lot better than twenty three million does. So understandably why he's doing it, but this is where we need to be uh, more fact based. We need to check into these facts. Because this number is, as you're saying, wrong. And there are people who, you know, they don't listen to our podcast. They don't look up this information. They hear the president say 94 million. They're like, oh, wow, that's horrible. Let's do something about it. And that's that happens more than just in that case. And that's where the trouble really comes with people just being uneducated because the places that should be giving them the correct information are not. Right. But who can we trust if we can't trust the news? You can trust us. <laughs> We're not news or just a podcast. All right. Um, the last point I want to bring up here um, with the speech is he, he's, he discussed the murder rate. Again, fuzzy math. Uh, he said that you know, the murder rate in 2015 experienced the largest single year increase in nearly a half century. And that's true since the 70s. Um, there was a 10.8% uh, increase. But what it leaves out is that from 1993 to 2014, their murder rate dropped by 42%, while the population rose by 25%. So even though it's going back up, it's still nowhere near what it was in the late 80s, early 90s. So 
again, he's giving you the numbers that he wants to make his case, but not the numbers that kind of paint the entire picture. Yeah, and again, this is where facts matter. This is where it's our job to look into what the actual numbers are and to look into why things are happening where they are. Is it happening in certain places more than others? You know, what's what can be done? What realistically can be done by the government to try to make the murder rate go down? Is it common sense gun control? Uh, is it uh, more police in certain cities? I don't know what the answer is, but we owe it to ourselves to find the fact-based evidence that could help us. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to take more than a half-assed uh, task force on answering violent crime in the cities, whatever you put together, to really answer it. And in my opinion, it's not any one of those single problems. It's many problems, and they all, you know, it's combined to make a perfect storm. Whether it's education, whether it's um, economic status, whether it's you know where you are, it's it's it's. It's not an answer that can just be easily, easily fixed. And I, you know, I don't know if Trump really understands that. Um, I don't know. If, there's a lot of things. I don't think Trump understands the difference between immigrants and refugees. Those are two different things. I don't think he understands these these numbers. Um, so, when it comes to these, you know, this wasn't a State of the Union, but it's basically a State of the Union. They just don't call it that. It's joint session to Congress. Um, I always recommend. I never take my own advice, but I never. I always recommend to not watch it. Read it the next day without the clapping, without the inflection, uh, without the people booing. Uh, I think you get a real understanding of what someone actually says and whether there's any substance there at all. Right. And as as we often see, there's not too much substance to these types of speeches. They offer these grandiose ideas without a whole lot of support for what they're how they're actually going to carry them out. So it remains to be seen if and when and how many of these ideas will actually be put into place. You know, if, if, if Trump is this way for the rest of his presidency and doesn't become a lunatic, you know, I, I could live with it. But again, I'm not holding my breath um, when he's not sitting there. And I, I guess I guess he can read. We, we wondered before if he was a functional literate. Maybe, I don't know what's going on. But, well, um, he had a lot of practice. You saw the, the footage yeah. before it started of him sitting in the beast uh, reciting his lines. <laughs> but uh, you know when it's when when he's pure Trump and just you can't think of anything to say and just says something ridiculous, um, you know we'll be there to tweet that out. So I, I, I honestly, I you know for our country, I hope he's a little more sane. But for this podcast, I hope he still goes crazy. What the hell are we going to talk about if he doesn't do insane things every week? I know he keeps us in business. Oh boy, so. Um, and I want to thank my, my colleague, Brad. He was the one who alerted me of the Jeff, Jeff Sessions story. So, um, and, he, and I know he listens. So thank you for that. So uh, before we go, uh, is there anything else you want to bring up? Anything I missed? You know, I think I want to end uh, my thoughts for the night with just this, this idea of judging anyone, but certainly the president, by their actions and not their words. Donald Trump presented himself perhaps the best he has since election night in this speech. And I certainly hope that he really is willing to unify, that he's willing to work together and try to work across the aisle to get some common sense laws made. But just keep in mind that when things are said but not followed through, keep in mind that Donald Trump, in the same day that he said he wants to promote clean air and water, uh, signed an executive order that uh, 
uh, rolled back the 2015 clean water rule. So you judge a person by their actions and not their words. And that's what I want people to think about. I think, that, I think that's a perfect way to end the show. Um, before we go, just want to remind people that we are on iTunes, we're on Android platforms, and we're on YouTube. So you should be able to find us and just Google, uh, you know, maybe not at work, but at uh, your home, Google grab him by the pod and you'll find uh, us all over the place. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at grab by the pod. Uh, leave out the them, couldn't fit it in. And then you can shoot us an email at gmail at grabthembythepot at gmail.com. Let us, let us know what you think. We'd love to discuss some viewer comments or tweets uh, on the show. Yeah, we want to hear from you. Oh, so until the next, uh, I would say until the next show or until the next tweet. Uh, it's been fun, Kevin. I'll talk to you next time. Later. Later.